The banking crisis continues, and as any time there's a crisis, there's investors wanting to pounce on opportunity. The opportunity, seemingly this time, is distressed banks. Banks that have been sold off unfairly due to all the problems going on. Now, in this episode, I want to take a different approach. I want to explain why earlier this year, I high-graded my portfolio, meaning I increased the quality of it, and part of that high-grading was to no longer invest in banks. That's right. I don't have any bank investments currently, I haven't had any bank investments for months, and I don't plan on buying any banks during this sell-off. And in this episode, I wanna explain in more detail why. We're gonna be looking at the hidden risks and complexities of banks and how they catch investors off guard. On top of that, we're gonna continue looking at this expanded and ongoing banking crisis. There's still a lot of things going on in this crisis. And then something I have to highlight is this exchange between Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma and Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. What he does is basically skewer her with these questions. And they're not very argumentative. He's not being mean to her. He's just asking straightforward questions that she had no answer to. So this clip went viral over the weekend and we'll be looking at it and reacting to it as well. Now, before we get into any of that, just a quick word from today's sponsor, which is the Joseph Carlson Show Patreon. This Patreon has grown a lot. We now have over 3,300 members and it continues to grow. The Patreon offers a few different things. The first thing is a Discord community with thousands of active members. On the Discord community, there's various channels that you can go to and chat with other members. You can learn a lot from them. This is where I learn most of the new information that I do from other Discord members. On top of that, we also have exclusive episodes. I release these on the Discord. They're typically around a half hour to an hour long, and I come out with them quite frequently, maybe once or twice a week. There's currently 112 exclusive episodes. And then finally, the Patreon includes Qualtrum, which is a suite of software where you can look up companies, see all these charts. I use it frequently on the show. It provides the most well-rounded, in-depth information on a stock at a glance, so you can see all the fundamentals in one place. All of this is included, the community, the exclusive episodes, and the software at a flat price of $10 per month. So if you haven't already, try it out and let me know what you think. All right, now let's go ahead and jump right in. We'll start off with this banking crisis. The first thing that I'll say is that early this year, I came out with a lot of content about how I'm high grading my portfolio. High grading meaning that I'm making it stronger. I'm making every holding I invest in a higher quality holding. And part of that was getting rid of highly levered companies financials in particular. Now, I do have a category here called financials, but in this category, I have no banks. S&P Global and MasterCard are two financial companies, but they're more like toll booth companies that collect fees for offering services. They're not banks, they don't lend to anyone, and they don't have excessive amounts of debt. So even though these companies work with banks, they do not have the same risk factors that banks have. Out of all the companies that I own that are the most similar to banks, the only one would be Vici. Although Vici is not a bank, it's a real estate investment trust which uses a lot of leverage to grow. And that is similar to banks. Both of them use leverage. So this is one company that even though I'm breaking one of my rules here, I'm investing in a company that uses a lot of leverage, I've limited the amount of exposure and it's in a category that doesn't have the same complexity as banks. Real estate is more straightforward. But other than that, every single company I own has very low amounts of debt and the decision to avoid banks has been an intentional one. At one point I owned JP Morgan. That was a company that I bought during the pandemic sell-off. It recovered really well and I sold that one 
at an $8,000 gain. So that one was a big winner. I timed the cyclicality of it, but I've decided to focus now on quality compounders. So my portfolio overall doesn't have a lot of exposure to these type of companies. And I'm happy about that now because now we're in a situation where every day it seems like another bank is getting in trouble. Nobody I know was predicting the Silicon Valley bank collapse. That happened out of nowhere. Next up, we have Silvergate. That one also collapsed out of the blue. We have Signature Bank going down. We have Credit Suisse going down as well. That one needed to be purchased by another bigger bank. And then we have First Republic Bank also going down and needing desperate help, which is what they're trying to save right now. So these banks are going down left and right and people on Wall Street bets are making bingo cards out of it. And this is the type of industry this is. For most of these banks, they looked fine a couple months ago. Credit Suisse was the only one that was visibly troubled for a long period of time. But this is the situation we're in now. There's a loss of confidence in the banking system that bigger banks and the government are desperately trying to restore. They wanna get the public confident in their deposits. The latest news is that Jamie Dimon is trying to save First Republic Bank. From the sounds of this, it doesn't look like JP Morgan is gonna be buying First Republic Bank, but more that Jamie Dimon is trying to craft the plan of saving it. The discussions, while preliminary, have focused on how the industry could arrange for an investment that would boost the bank's capital, according to people familiar with the matter. Among the options on the table, the people said, is an investment in First Republic by the banks themselves. Now, they've had 11 banks already band together and deposit $30 billion into First Republic Bank, but customers have withdrawn $70 billion since the collapse. So there's still a huge hole even after 30 billion in deposits. Mr. Diamond and his fellow CEOs are trying to instill confidence in a banking system facing its worst crisis in 15 years. And that is really what this is, a crisis in confidence. Banks really haven't changed that much over the past 10 years. All that's changed is the confidence of the depositor. Depositors pulling their money is what's putting stress on the banks. The reason that Jamie Dimon and the government are trying so hard to restore confidence in the banking system is because the banking system uniquely relies on confidence. It relies on trust. It's an entire system built around trust. Once depositors lose trust with their bank, then no longer can the bank function. Matt Levine described this in a recent article, saying, you put your money in a bank today because you are confident that you can take it out tomorrow. To you, a dollar that you have deposited in the bank is just as good, just as much money as a dollar bill in your wallet. If you show up at the ATM at any time, day or night, you expect it to give you your dollars. But the bank doesn't just put your dollars in a box and wait for you to take them out. The bank uses its depositors' money to make loans and buy bonds, and just keeps a little around for people who need cash. If everyone asked for their money back tomorrow, the bank wouldn't have it. But everyone is confident that if they ask for their money back tomorrow, the bank will have it. So they mostly don't ask for it. So when they do, the bank does have it. The widespread belief that banks have the money is what makes it true. And this is true for any bank. The only reason that the bank has your money is because not everyone's trying to get their money at the same time. As soon as people lose confidence in a bank, all of them logging onto their phones, trying to withdraw money at the same time, the bank no longer has the liquidity. So all of this relies on confidence and confidence is what's being lost. Now, part of instilling confidence in the public and the depositors is the joint release from the FDIC and other government agencies. They've already stepped in and basically said 
that we're going to make sure that depositors get their money back from Silicon Valley Bank. We're also going to make sure that the senior executives, the shareholders, and the bondholders are not protected. So they're going to be wiped out, and that way it's not a bailout. And then finally, they made the promise that none of this would be borne by the taxpayer. That is something that they said repeatedly. No losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. So in all, this was a very good response on the surface. They're saving depositors, they're wiping out the investors, and they're not costing taxpayers a dime. It almost seems like it was a little too good to be true. And in this exchange with Senator James Lankford, he highlights some of the too-good-to-be-true problems with these statements. This exchange went completely viral, got viewed millions of times. I want to go through it because I think it's one of the most masterful set of questions from a senator that I've seen to a government official. Will the deposits in every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of their size, be fully insured now? Are they fully recovered? Every bank, every community bank in Oklahoma, regardless of the size of the deposit, will they get the same treatment that SVBP just got or Signature Bank just got? I think this is a very fair question. He's representing Oklahoma that has a bunch of regional and smaller banks, and he's asking if they're going to get the same treatment. A bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority, a supermajority of the Fed board, and I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure to protect uninsured depositors would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. Her response here is amazing. It's amazing that she doesn't see the glaring problems with it. She's basically saying that us very important people at the FDIC, the Treasury, and the President, we get to handpick winners and losers, and we only pick you as important enough to be saved if you're big enough to affect the overall economy. That's basically it. If you're just a smaller company and you're not going to impact or have any type of risk associated with the rest of the economy, then tough luck. Smaller companies, good luck on your own. Bigger companies, you get special guarantees for your depositors. What a disconnected response from Janet Yellen. Plan. Make that determination. Right. right. So, so what is your bad. plan to keep large depositors from moving their funds out of community banks into the big banks? We have seen the mergers of banks over the past decade. I'm concerned you're about to accelerate that by encouraging anyone who has a large deposit in a community bank to say, we're not going to make you whole, but if you go to one of our preferred banks, we will make you whole at that point. Senator Lankford is pointing out that this type of policy of only insuring bigger banks of larger deposits, that would work to incentivize large depositors to move away from regional banks and put all of their money into the big four banks. And Janet Yellen has no response to this. Um, look, I mean, we're, that's certainly not something that we're encouraging. That is happening right now. That is happening because depositors are concerned about the bank failures that have happened and whether or not other banks could also um, no, it, it, fail. No, it's happening and because it's, you're fully insured no matter what the amount is. If you're in a big bank, you're not fully insured if you're in a community bank. Well, you're not fully insured. And you, you big, were at Signature, and it, big, was, it just barely met that threshold. You were at Signature. 
So she goes on slowly speaking about how they're trying to restore confidence, not addressing the question directly. That's the first big misstep highlighted in this policy. If you're only protecting big banks, it's going to incentivize large depositors to only use big banks. But Langford isn't done here. He asks another question that highlights another big hole in this policy. Special assessment that's been done on community banks in my state and all banks across the country. Was there any discussion that that special assessment would only apply to the larger banks, or was it always assumed the special assessment would cover every bank, including rural banks in my state? For context here, the special assessment is when they looked at every bank and determined how much additional supplemental insurance they'll have to pay into to pay out the losses for Silicon Valley Bank. And he's asking if regional banks and smaller banks are having to pay into this special assessment fee. I, I think I, I'm not certain what the rules are around that. Um, that that's uh, for the FDIC to determine. It, it, it has been reported publicly that uh, SVB had a large number of Chinese investors that are there, including some that were companies directly connected to the Chinese Communist Party. It, will, will those individual, will those individuals, companies, entities, and investors that are Chinese investors be made whole based on assessments? in my banks in Oklahoma. So what I'm asking is, will my banks in Oklahoma pay a special assessment to be able to make Chinese investors whole from Silicon Valley Bank? Uninsured investors will be made whole in that bank, and I suppose that could include foreign foreign depositors, but I don't believe there's any legal basis to discriminate among uninsured. So these smaller regional banks are now paying a special assessment fee to bail out Silicon Valley Bank when they do not get the same protections for their depositors. So they're paying into this pool of insurance where they don't have any claim to the actual insurance themselves if they get in trouble. Not only that, but he also highlighted there that many of the depositors at Silicon Valley Bank were foreign investors putting their money into that bank because of their VC funds. So his smaller regional banks are bailing out the deposits of foreign Chinese investors. And then finally, he goes on to address the tax claims. The idea that taxpayers are not bearing these costs. It is always fascinating to me as well, the conversation that taxpayers are being made whole in this, that taxpayers are not going to have any kind of consequence on this. I'm sure my bankers are going to be very excited to know they no longer pay taxes uh, and their banks no longer pay taxes. Credit unions don't pay taxes. Banks do. And so they're definitely taxpayers as well. And all banks make their revenue off of rates and fees and such to their account holders, which means every Oklahoman. There you have it. Basically, his argument is that although you're not directly taxing the taxpayer, you're doing it indirectly by taxing bankers who banks will raise the fees to the taxpayer. So it's basically taxing somebody, but just one step removed. So obviously there's some problems with the initial plan being highlighted, and hopefully those get worked through by the government with a more thoughtful response to different level effects. Now, again, this highlights why I have avoided banks. I've just decided to avoid banks in general. And again, this all comes down to the biggest risk factor with banks, which is their leverage. This is something that cannot be overstated enough. Companies that use leverage have more risk and banks use a lot more leverage than normal companies. On this topic of using leverage, I think someone that has the best take on this is Terry Smith. In 2014, he wrote an article in the Financial Times called Why I Don't Own Bank Shares. He starts off by saying, I've often been asked why I won't invest in bank shares 
given that I was once the top-rated banking analyst in the city. Now, this is accurate. Terry Smith is incredibly knowledgeable on reading statements, cash flows, on reading the actual balance sheet of a company. He's come out with a book called Accounting for Growth, where he highlights a lot of the different frauds and deceptive counting practices that many companies were participating in. So he's a very knowledgeable banking analyst. He says the answer is that having an understanding of banks would make anyone more wary to invest in them. One of the basic tenets is to never invest in a business which requires leverage or borrowing to make an adequate return on equity. Banks rely on leverage to a greater extent than any other business. A 5% equity to asset ratio for a bank is leverage of 19 in debt to one equity. 19 to one leverage. He goes on highlighting the fundamental problems of investing in banks. Small changes in the total assets can wipe out equity holders and bondholders. A bank makes a small return, typically 1-2% to on its total assets, but as 95% of its assets are funded by depositors and bondholders, the return on equity is much higher. This is fine until something goes wrong. Then a loss of just 5% of the value of assets means the shareholder's equity is wiped out. Doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Just a 5% loss of the value of assets wipes out the equity holders. A more pernicious threat is a run on the bank. Investors had forgotten about the credit cycle of 2007. And when credit is withdrawn, sometimes it is withdrawn from banks as well as their customers. A run on the bank is a more pernicious threat. This is exactly what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. They're having a run on the bank. A lot of people trying to withdraw their money all in the same day. Now to wrap up this letter, and again, Terry Smith didn't come out with this in hindsight. This was written in 2014, but he wraps it up with this incredible story that illustrates how fragile the banking system is, how fragile banks are in general. He says the fragility of banks is illustrated by a story from the 1980s. When there was a wave of nervousness in Hong Kong following the signing of the joint declaration regarding the colony's handover to China, property prices began to collapse and banks ran up bad debts as a result. During this febrile period, a queue of people waited for a bus. It started to rain, and the queue moved across the pavement to shelter under the cover of a canopy on a building, which happened to house a branch of local family-controlled banks. Passerbys, seeing the queue of people, concluded that there was a problem with the bank. Rumors of a run spread rapidly, and by the following day, the bank was besieged by depositors demanding a withdrawal of their savings. That is insane. There was literally a group of people that wanted to get out of the rain. They just wanted to get under canopy, so they lined up under a building's canopy, and that spread rumors which caused a bank run. That's literally all it took to take down these banks, people lining up outside of a building. Early on in the Silicon Valley bank run, there's literally video footage from people's cameras showing people lined up outside of the branch. And nowadays it seems like the problem's even worse. We don't need to actually see people lined up outside of a building. All we need is a couple rumors to spread that there's going to be a bank run and everyone can log in on their phone at the same time. So going back to that first question, why do I not invest in banks? The reason is illustrated with all the examples of the fragility of banks. The fact that people lining up outside of a door can cause a bank to collapse. The fact that anything causing a bank run causes a seemingly healthy bank with no apparent problems to all of a sudden be in such distress that it goes under in a single day, in an eight-hour period. This is the result of excessive amounts of leverage. 
banks have more leverage than other companies and they have more risk than other companies. They're more complex than other companies. They're more economically sensitive to other companies. And they're more at the whims and the mercy of random depositors pulling their money than any other company. Even other companies that use a lot of leverage, like real estate, doesn't have the same complexity that banks do. So when I look at my strategy, I am maintaining a disciplined investing strategy. And I don't wanna break my rules of going from highly predictable compounding companies to lower quality, economically sensitive, unpredictable companies because the valuation has dropped. Banks valuations are cyclical. They drop unexpectedly all the time. So in this case, I am not gonna be taking this as an opportunity to buy any of these companies. What I have bought is more of the same. I have purchased more MasterCard, more Costco, more S&P Global, more Vici. High quality compounding dividend payers with very predictable earnings. So I hope that gives you a broader explanation of why I'm not buying bank stocks. And I think it's important to keep this in mind in terms of your overall investing strategy. I think it's much better to stick to a well-defined, thought-out investing strategy than to constantly be changing the rules as things happen. If you find yourself always changing the rules of what you will and won't invest in, I think that's a bad situation to be in. So in my case, I'm going to stay consistent. That's all for now. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll see you in the next one.